guys, it's Naomi Guy and that's Joel Guy. I'm staring at him on a Zoom screen. Week, what is this? This is our second time in a row recording that we're on a Zoom screen. We just really don't like each other, Joel. Uh, no comment. <laughs> we have a special guest today, Audrey. I don't know what your last name, what your legal last name is. So I'm just going to say Audrey because I know your original last name, but I don't know your now last name. So uh-huh. I just want to... I just want to say the Guy family has always been good at background research. We're yeah. always good at digging in deep <laughs> to our subject's history, coming up with questions unique we, to them and their experiences. We don't just bring people on randomly or do we? I swear your last name will be reflected in the episode description. And I don't know. Episodes. Joel just called me 10 minutes ago and was like, hey, do you have a little bit of time to spare? We don't have anybody <laughs> for this podcast. We don't. Um, oh, God, we don't have an episode <laughs> for next week. Acha, you got to help out. I love it. I love it. So Audrey, how about you introduce yourself? Give your full legal last name, your social security number, and your ATM pen, please. Yeah, that absolutely. Names, mother's maiden, all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. I would do nothing less. Um, so my name is Audrey Lowry. Um, I did not change my name when I got married. So all that stayed the same. Um, I use a lot of like pseudonyms, hidden names on social media and stuff. So it's super confusing. Nobody knows what my actual name is, but now you do. Audrey Lowry. (laughs) Um, And I am an old friend of Joel's and therefore also an old friend of Naomi's. Um, We met way back in the day in high school. um, And I am a radically different person than I was then, which is part of my intrigue. And probably the only reason I'm here because otherwise I'm not not that interesting. (laughs) Um, And I am a Byzantine Catholic. I'm 24 years old. I have two kids, a three-year-old and a two-year-old. And then I'm also 30 weeks pregnant. And I've been married for five years. So that means I got married at 19. Um, And yeah, that's kind of like the the cliff notes. I also really love smut and romance novels, especially dark romance. Um, That's like my whole my whole identity right now it's how I spend all my time when you <laughs> so say that's... dark romance you said you're a Byzantine Catholic so like <laughs> romance in cathedrals where they haven't lit enough candles you know fumbling I... in the dark sweet nothings being said into thin air I will say that generally as a Catholic I avoid um priest-based or church-based uh smut um I think that's a line I'm just like not interested in crossing and part of that's because I'm a convert, right? So I converted at 19. So I don't have a lot of like religious trauma to process that a lot of other people do. So I don't need my books to help me do that specifically. Kind of <laughs> like people with daddy issues that like. Absolutely. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. My, my love and admiration for romance novels, smut, the whole gamut is entirely rooted unapologetically in trauma processing and empowerment and like learning to reclaim one's body and sexuality and all of those things. And like, I firmly believe that romance novels allow people to do that in a brand new way. And I could talk about that for a million years, but that is absolutely where that love comes from. So um, no, dark romance is a little bit more like, like almost taboo romance. Um, So it's not what you expect, like an Avon romance, like Bridgerton or something like that, where it's, you know, pretty mild, you know, prince, princess, whatever, um, dark romance, the one of the main characters or both might be villains, um, bad people, genuinely bad people who do terrible, traumatizing things. Um, and very frequently, one of the main characters, if not both of them, also have experienced extensive trauma. 
and are processing that as they're also living out this really dark reality. And it's a world where you're able to just like talk about stuff that makes people uncomfortable. Um, and everything's in it. <laughs> um, so that's why I love dark romances because it's not afraid to say things out loud that the rest of the world like doesn't love. And it lets sexual violence victims, sexual assault victims really just talk about like their, their entire selves at once. Instead of being like a meek cowering victim or being like a person who's totally unaffected, they can be like a complex human being. So that's, that that's interesting because uh, I've always thought as romance novels and like romance media as being a form of wish fulfillment. And one of my big critiques of films like Silver Linings Playbook is neither of the characters, neither the male lead nor the female lead seem aspirational in any sense. They just seem like toxic individuals. And so I don't understand why people are attracted to that sort of thing. Um, so, so in your mind, it's more of just playing in the space being like, these are interesting topics to like ponder and look over and try to understand better. It can be. Yeah. You know, the different books serve different purposes and I don't just read dark romance. You know, that I definitely read, you know, rom-coms, um, things that are uncomplicated, silly, goofy, lighthearted, um, you know, just people being normal people, people whose biggest baggage is that their mom is kind of a jerk and their parents got divorced when they were 10, but they're on decent terms and, you know, all that stuff. So like I can, a lot of people enjoy and can engage with the mild stuff. Um, and it's people working through complexities, but also people vicariously experiencing, experiencing and exploring, exploring that tension that comes with romantic and sexual entanglements. Um, it's not entirely dissimilar from like, you know, pornography engagement. I would say there are some very important distinct differences. Um, but especially when you look at more like uh, less problematic pornography, like when we empower sex workers, things like that to create content on their own instead of, like, you know, fueling like exploitative industry, right? Like there's different genres of that. That also exists in the romance world, right? Um, in the romance world, we talk a lot about men written by women <laughs> and um, a serious exploration of why do we love men written by women so much? Like what's going on? <laughs> why, are these, why are these men who are written by women so unbelievably desirable and also elusive and like maybe dangerous for us to continue <laughs> engaging with because they're not actual people right and so it's there's a lot of different pieces but in the world of dark romance it kind of serves a different role because you have you know someone who has experienced something terrible whatever it is and the world generally expects them to either be very meek and weak right and so maybe they get afraid when someone touches them or they don't like engaging with their sexuality or whatever. What if we say that, that we don't say that that has to be the case? What if that person actually is like now has this trauma interwoven with a positive sexual expression where it's like, no, I actually like enjoy imbalanced power dynamics in a safe space. Maybe it doesn't start out as a safe space, but they're like, oh, I'm actually interested in this, engaged in this, and like positively interacting with this. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable because it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, that's not allowed. Like, sexual violence victims are only allowed to engage with their sexuality in a particular way and process their trauma in a particular way. But what if it's messy? And what if it makes other people uncomfortable? And then it's watching them learn to not care anymore. <laughs> And pretty much over and over again, 
right? There's a lot of the same sentiment repeated, which is like, I'm still going to have to deal with the consequences of my actions after my orgasm. That's something that was said in one of the books I just finished. And I was like, you know, okay. <laughs> like, I, I am on board with that. Um, and it, within the dark romance world, there's, there's spectrums of consent expression in the books. Obviously, they're fictional characters, right? So consent is, works a little differently than it would in, like, you know, pornography or an actual sexual encounter. Um, but there's sometimes dubious consent. There is some stuff that's non-consensual. That's not really my, my area. Um, dubious consent or more, like, reluctant consent, no more graves. And again, that makes people kind of, like, like, why would someone who's been traumatized want to engage with these things? Well, the reason is because you have the power. Like, you have the book in front of you. You choose when to read. You choose when to stop. You choose when to put the book away. You choose when to, to return it to the library. Like, you're in control of everything about how you process, relate to, experience this book. It's at your pace. You don't have to answer to anyone. You don't have to perform. You don't have to have a particular reaction. You just get to be. Um, and that's awesome. And I think it's very freeing, um, not only for, you know, people who've experienced sexual violence, but women in general, because I think women are quite often discouraged from really digging into their own understanding of their sexuality. It's all very much like learning how to please a man from a very young age. I didn't really start asking meaningful questions. I, I had 100 sexual partners before I turned 18. I didn't really start asking questions about my, my own sexual enjoyment until after I was married. Like, what am I into? Like, you know, and I had lots of sexual experience, but I hadn't had that conversation on my own. Not like, what does my partner like that I also like, but just me by myself in a bubble. <laughs> like, and it's okay if I like something or discover something or explore something that my partner isn't into because I'm reading it in a book. <laughs> and I get to explore that, process it, um, see what it means, not only in bed or in, you know, wherever else you have sex, but um, also in the rest of my life, you know, trauma processing everywhere else. Like, what does this mean about who I am as a person? Um, and dark romance is a place where people can do that and people aren't going to blink at you <laughs> or balk at you or try and school you into having a particular reaction or feeling. Hopefully that helps. I know it's kind of hard to understand from the outside, especially if you don't particularly need a place like that. It's kind of hard to explain why it's necessary. Well, I think you bring up a good point about like the world kind of like when you come out as a like a survivor or something of that nature, people kind of look at you and they're like they have pity for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that often there's not a place where as a survivor or a trauma victim, you are allowed to explore your sexuality it's kind of just like oh well that's going to define you for the rest of your life and you're never going to be able to come past like get past that mm -hmm. and um I think that the way that you're doing it is definitely different I've never heard of anyone like doing like reacting to their trauma through that that sort of outlet but I do think like I understand what you're saying in the sense that like you're not doing it with anyone else like you don't have a therapist being like oh well this is how you should like cope with the situation it's kind of just like okay, I'm going to explore this and see how it goes. Yeah, and to be clear, like, I did do therapy. <laughs> like, like, you know, professional support, you know, all the traditional avenues are good, right? But yeah. this is just, yeah, like, yeah. another another way to have that more, like, personal, intimate experience yeah. exploration. Sorry, go ahead, Joel. I, I think it's interesting, too, because we've been trying to put together, like, a sex ed 
episode on pornography and it's difficult uh, for a couple of reasons. But one of the themes that I've seen expressed in a lot of different ways is one of the biggest problems with like pornography is it's not critical. Like a lot of art is critical of itself. It's critical of the ideas that shape the art. It's critical of other types of art. It, It expresses a stance on something. And then often there will be things that respond to that in turn. And the issue of pornography is, again, it's, it's very much all wish fulfillment. And so there's never anything that really questions your drives and your motives and your fetishes. There's never really an exploration of it. And when it is done, it's either done in a very simplistic manner or in such a way that it's like juvenile. I, I want to say I saw something in the early 2000s. I want to say James Gunn did this, you know, the director of the Suicide Squad movie and the Guardians Galaxy, it was like porn without porn. And it was just episodes where people were like, I need my pipes fixed. And then a plumber just showed up and like fixed the pipes or like, I know how you can pay me with Benjamin Franklin's. And then they just give him money. It was just a simple transaction. Um, But what you're talking about is interesting because it is almost a postmodern reflection on porn. It is like smut that gratifies while also questioning. And that's not something I've heard of. That is like a very unique area that it's inhabiting. And it's not something that I I, I think is common in the industry. Yeah. And I will say too, I, I have a lot of strong feelings about why romance novels, the romance world has been held in such disregard for so long. Um, Cause even reading, you know, sections out loud to my husband, um, He's always shocked at how good the writing is. Um, And at first, you know, I laughed along with him, right? Because I'm like, yeah, you're right. You know, it's not like it's not supposed to be good. And then I'm like, hold on. Like, that doesn't make any sense. For any genre, you would allow for there to be, you know, good books in the genre and bad books in the genre. So why is it when we look specifically at romance novels that we decide essentially collectively, like, these are trash, right? and I am pretty confident in my analysis that it's entirely misogyny. Um, essentially, what we've done culturally, collectively, is dismiss romance novels out of hand as for women, right? As feminine. And because of that, they're silly and can't be serious um, and can't have serious thoughts, ideas, etc. cetera. Um, and you're like, at first, I, even I recoil from that idea, right? Because I'm like, ah, like that seems like a big statement and a weird thing that we would all do kind of collectively without saying it out loud. But the more you think about it, the more you're like, oh, okay. Because then you see this has been a place and part of the, the reason why women have been able to cultivate this safe space for um, you know, consent discussions, you know, discussions of sexual pleasure, across experiences, right? So pregnant women, you know, women who enjoy, you know, things that aren't considered, okay, mainstream. A lot of incredible uh, queer-based romance novels and smut, you know, all of that has been thriving in this little community for a long time. And part of that is because nobody's looking at them because nobody takes them seriously. Um, So we've been able to have these incredible conversations and revelations without much scrutiny um, because of that lack of respect, um, the people who need it are desperate enough to go there. Um, I would say a lot of the time. Um, but at the same time, it's horrible for the authors because you can be an incredible author. I've read some absolutely incredible prose within the romance genre and their books will never be mainstream because characters have sex. Life has sex scenes. 
Why can't our books have sex scenes? Why can't our movies have sex scenes? Um, why can't people have sex without everybody like feeling unable? You know, we've been able to witness statues and art and museums of people naked or even having sex, right? And we have been able to separate that from pornography. We've been able to draw a line there for a while, hundreds of years, right? So why can't we do that here? And I think there's a lot of, of messy stuff tied into that, but I think it's a, it's a worthwhile thing to acknowledge when we're talking about it is like, this is not just people on like Wattpad or Tumblr or something writing fan fiction and you know, whatever. Like these are like true authors, true creators, true artists, like Joel was saying, um, who are throwing themselves into this, this creation and people who are engaging with the art and feeling transformed by it. That's happening every day all the time. Um, so it's not just like, and that's why I'm saying it's like essentially, quite essentially in many ways different than pornography. But that's one of the main ways um, is it's not just sexual gratification. It's something else. It's like I said, sexual processing and like formation and development and intentional reflection and all of those things. I would so like Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, Go. I was just gonna just gonna jump back. Um, you mentioned you got married at 19. And I would love to just jump into that because that's one untraditional, especially now we talk a lot about like, getting married on this podcast later and later and how people just like, can't financially do it, or they just like aren't dating anymore. Um, and I'd also like to talk about the fact that you obviously when we when we originally met you were very far on the other side of the religious spectrum. And I met you uh, probably like around 10 years ago, <laughs> less than that. Yeah. So like, fill me in what's been going on. <laughs> um, I really just love to like jump into that because that's something that I didn't really see you doing. And I just thought you'd be like the cool, like rich aunt that just traveled all the time. Like that was my like picture of you. Um, yeah, I'd love to jump into that. Yeah, definitely. No, like I said, that's kind of my intrigue, right? Um, you know, most people don't know about my my passion for smut. And this is the thing that most people are face up. Fascinatingly, both, um, both like people, I don't really know how to frame it, but like, you know, people on the left, people who are more progressive, you know, however you want to think of that. And then also people on the right, so like my Catholic folk and my atheist folk, um, all of them and everybody in between is like, what the heck happened to you? Um, and that question has been asked to me over and over again for the past five years. So, um, yeah, definitely a, a reasonable question that a lot of people had, including everyone in my life. Um, and I would say a lot of that um, comes from the fact that um, I was, like you said, to give people who are listening who don't know me a good background. I was raised by passionate atheists. Um, I wasn't really supposed to have Christian friends. Um, I was, we weren't just atheists. It was strongly anti-religious. Um, you know, we looked down on religious people. Um, and my parents would still say that's the case for sure. Um, and, um, you know, we also, you know, I, when I was going, getting ready to go to college, I was planning on going to um, Tulane, which is a university in Louisiana, going to med school, becoming an OBGYN, and um, I wanted to perform abortions. 
I wanted to be an OBGYN who was in, actively involved in reproductive justice and care. Um, I also, super queer, uh, was really engaged in, and I, I'm, I'm obviously still queer, that doesn't change. <laughs> so I engaged in um, a lot of activism related to that identity. And also, um, you know, reproductive freedom, reproductive choice, all of those things I was very politically active. So I wasn't just like casually on the left, I was like, quite. And I would caution though, I am not on the right. Trust me, the right doesn't want me. Um, the left probably doesn't want me anymore either, but um, I am not, I don't want to make it sound like, and I now I've like transformed into like, you know, like the whole red pill thing. That's not what's happening here. I mean, ultimately, whoever is listening can, they, they will certainly make that judgment whether I want them to or not, but that's not my I think uh, people were a little confused when you keep writing Strom Thurmond in on your ballot. <laughs> No, yeah. that is not true. I'm sorry. I shouldn't <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, to be clear, that's kind of where I came from. Um, and then, like I said, over a hundred sexual partners before I turned 18, very sexually active, um, had a lot of sexual experience. And then also um, a lot of, as you can probably tell from my discussion of, you know, romance novels and why I read them, a lot of um, sexual trauma as well that was happening, people knew a little bit, you know, people in my life, I would tell them bits and pieces, um, but not the full extent um, of what was happening. Um, and that is kind of the reason why everyone is so surprised is because they did not understand um, the full extent of the reality of my life prior to my conversion to Catholicism. Um, I was, during that time when I was outspoken and politically active and very impressive in all the right ways, especially to my family. Um, I also was being sexually trafficked um, by someone who was significantly older than me um, and orchestrated it when I was about 11 years old. And um, my final contact with him was shortly before I got married. Um, but I wasn't being actively um, trafficked that whole time. It kind of gets complicated towards the end there. Um, but that like dark, secret, quiet part is really the reason for everything else. Um, and it was hard for me to explain as it was happening to people because I was starting to fully come to terms with the true nature of you know, ages 11 to 16, you could say, but even frankly, 18, um, really starting to be able to look it in the eyes, like, and say things out loud and find vocabulary and words and gall. <laughs> um, and so what happened um, was around 18, I was having a conversation with Andrew, who's now my husband, but we were not dating at the time. In fact, we we're kind of enemies. <laughs> Nobody knew why we were talking to each other. Um, and I was bragging about my sexual prowess, as I always did, kind of posturing, because uh, that's kind of how I handled the whole situation. I just kind of like projected myself as like being excellent in bed. And that was kind of the, the way that I was like, yeah, I have a lot of sex and I'm, I'm good at it. So 
that's all you need to know. Um, and so Andrew looks at me. Uh, he had he had never had sex. Um, he had not had a girlfriend. He had no experience in this realm at all. He'd never seen pornography. He had never seen a woman naked. Like, no clue. So I'm feeling quite arrogant in this moment, right? The power feels very much in my court. And he looks at me and he says, Audrey, you have a lot of sex. And I like scoff at him. And I'm like, yeah, you could say that. And he's like, okay. Um, but you don't seem to enjoy it. And that gives me pause because no one's ever said that out loud to me before. Um, and he's absolutely not wrong. But I also didn't say that. <laughs> so I'm kind of like, who are you? Where did you come from? How are you? Like, you don't know me. And I, but I also didn't want to lie to him. And I was stunned, completely stunned. So I look at him and I say, not particularly, no. And he says, okay, so why do you do it? And again, I'm stunned, speechless, completely speechless. Because again, no one's ever asked me. And I realized in that moment, I did not have a good answer. I didn't have any kind of grounding in self in my, my sexuality, you know, my reasons for being like, all of that was, was completely like ballooned on all this stuff that I realized if I said it out loud, I'd sound like a fool, right? Like I didn't have like a cocky, impressive answer to that question. So thankfully we were alone. There was no one else around us. Um, and I looked at him and I was like, it's just what you do. And he kind of, I can tell he's trying not to smile at me. And he says, fair enough. And then he just turns. And that's it. And I know that he, at the time, I know that he's Catholic and I don't like Catholics. I know that he's a virgin and I don't like virgins. Um, so I'm like, he's probably judging me, right? Like I just feel, but he didn't say anything judgmental. And I know now he wasn't judging me. He genuinely was curious because he, he knew that he didn't know, right? But that line of questioning, those three questions blew my entire life up completely because I am the kind of person who's like, oh no, like I am entirely consumed by a desire for intentionality. So if I'm doing something, investing time in something, orienting myself around something, it needs to be meaningful. I think we all, you know, when it comes down to it, feel some sort of obligation towards that. But for me, it's like all consuming, like I cannot rest. So I was like, uh-oh, he just kind of like tore everything down nonchalantly and then walked away. Um, so that was insane. <laughs> and then um, soon after that, I graduated from high school. Um, that same week, I actually broke up with the guy I was dating at the time, who was fine enough, absolutely age inappropriate. Um, <laughs> and I thought at the time, I thought, oh, like this is like one of like the, the good, healthy relationships I'm going to have. You know, I was, I had just turned 18. So I'm like, yeah, awesome. Um, you know, he's not like, you know, dark alley abusive, uh, but he's not also good. But Andrew was like, you're using this guy and he's a joke. Just break up with him. And I was like, okay, because now Andrew was like a prophet to me. And that was something I very quickly was like, we need to put some distance because <laughs> this guy is like, like I'm taking his like words at too much value. So I like put a stiff arm up and was like, okay, like I'm not giving you that much control over how I uh, view the world. But he also was unafraid to ask me questions that everyone else was afraid to ask. Um, and they needed to be asked. So then I went backpacking across Europe 
for a few months with uh, my closest friends. Um, and I had a lot of time to think because we didn't have cell service. Um, we didn't like pay for overseas plans because we were broke. Um, so I spent a lot of time sitting in train stations, thinking about nothing, grappling with my own existence, right? Because that's kind of also what you do when you're going from high school to college. You're like, who am I? Who do I want to be? Um, and on that trip, I realized that if I didn't do something, my current sexual trajectory was going to ruin me. Like, not just like ruin me in some like moral sense. No, 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 not like that. It was like, this is going to kill me. Like, I can't keep doing this. It got to a point where all of my sexual relationships often felt like harm. Like all of my sexual encounters, all of it was like soul crushing. And I had all this stuff that I needed to deal with. But again, I had been posturing so much to protect myself from being like this victim complex, right? That I hadn't been, I hadn't given myself or been given space to process any of it. So I was like, okay, we got to stop. So on this trip, absent of any God talk or religious talk, moral judgments, I committed to abstinence for the foreseeable future going into college. I also didn't drink or do drugs for my own personal reasons. Um, so then when I showed up to college as a freshman at like top five party schools in the country, um, I was not popular. <laughs> I was uh, odd. And um, I was on the outside of things for a long time. And I tried to fit in, but you know, people, I didn't have good reasons that were very satisfying. Like, oh, my dad's an alcoholic or like, I know somebody who OD'd. Like I heard people who had those reasons, but I didn't want to lie about something like that. So I was like, it's just not for me. And they're like, oh, okay. Um, and they made a lot of assumptions about someone who doesn't drink, doesn't do drugs and doesn't have sex, <laughs> um, which is understandable. But no, I was just like a super queer atheist who um, also was trying to figure out everything else and was like, I need to stop this train. Um, so then I started looking into, because Andrew was the first person who was willing to have these conversations with me, I started looking into Catholic social teaching on sex and marriage, entirely because, like, that was where he was coming from. And I was like, okay, this dude doesn't use women, doesn't make me feel like a trash can, and doesn't try and initiate a romantic or sexual relationship with me at all. Like, I'm just a person to him. He knows how like sexually accessible I am. He's never done anything. And not just because he's uninterested, but there's like a certain amount of respect that's happening here that I don't experience elsewhere. So I was fascinated by that. And I was like, also Catholics are morons. So like, I was also really struggling to understand how I could respect and be in a relationship with him, like as a friend, right? But also he's a Catholic, like, and he's supposed to hate me for like a lot of reasons. Um, and he doesn't, and it's all bizarre, and I'm very confused. So I start doing all this research, and I realize Catholic social teaching on sex and marriage is incredibly difficult to swallow, jarring, uncomfortable, and maybe the thing that is like the answer to the questions and the problems and all the stuff that I'm trying to process and work through. Now, again, this is entirely without a God talk. <laughs> I I'm not interested in having a relationship with God. I don't want a God. I don't need a God. I am not talking to that dude. I am exclusively focusing on brain stuff. 
<laughs> like I have a problem, I want a solution. So that's what I dived into. Um, I started befriending Catholics at college and um, really leaned into it. And then there's a lot of other bits and pieces, but your initial question was about marriage, how I ended up there. And the w- reason why I had to kind of give that backstory is because then when you understand, like, of course, eventually Andrew and I start dating, um, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, and there's really two reasons why I got married so young. And I don't recommend it for everyone. I don't think it's the solution for everybody um, at all. I take marriage very seriously, right? As a Catholic, I'm not to think of the correct phrasing for this divorce is not on the table in my relationship right so it's a covenant more than a contract um and it's not that for everybody so i recognize you know marriage doesn't mean the same thing to everybody but that's what it means to me <laughs> so i'm like no 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 if you're not like 100 like all on board you know really believe that this is what you need like don't get married <laughs> so if it takes you 10 years to figure that out wait 10 years honestly um but for me I, there were two things. First, um, as a Catholic at that point, Catholics have this concept of vocation, like calling, it's like calling dash occupation. So there's a few things, right? So you can be called to religious life, like a priest, nun, monk, whomever, or you can be called to married life, like me, or you can be called to, um, there's a few different words for it, but it's essentially somebody who's single and celibate, but lives in the world. So they're not part of a particular order of people, like a group of people, but they're like, sometimes they're called consecrated virgins, but I don't love that phrasing because they're not always virgins, right? But that's the idea, right? Those are kind of your options. And those vocations aren't just like your nine to five, right? They like create the essence of how you are in the world. So it's not just whether or not you have sex, whether or not you're married. That's what I think most people see it as but it informs every element of who you are and how you engage with the world. So with a Catholic mindset, once you've discerned your vocation, so which one of those tracks you plan to follow down, and you know with certainty with whom you're following down that track, if it involves other people or an order or whatever, it's hard to justify not saying yes to it. Because again, your vocation, like your reason for being this thing that informs every part of who you are, it's not a hobby. You know, it's not a, it's not even a, like a life milestone. Like it is what living is. So if you're not actively preparing for or engaging with your like purpose for life, then what are you doing? And I think that even secular folk, you know, people who don't have any kind of religious background or religion doesn't inform this for them, would also agree with that. Like if one of you were to decide like, you know, my purpose in life is X, right? Like I want to like, I don't know, save people. I don't know, some some kind of calling, and you discerned that, and you decided that was it. That was what you wanted to do, but then you're like, but I'm gonna wait five years to engage with that. I'm not gonna work towards it. I'm not gonna, you know, try and engage with it. Like I'm just gonna wait for no particular reason, right? Like you can have reasons. You know, there's lots of Catholics who don't get married at 19, but that's kind of the first thing. Is like, for me, marriage was not a box to be checked it was like a whole part of the path of my life and unless I had a solid reason why I couldn't get married or shouldn't get married like I don't know who I'm supposed to marry for example um then like 
there's no reason for me to say no, especially when you bring in the God part, right? Because like the relationship, your vocation, right? Which is marriage, um, not you specifically, my vocation, which is marriage, um, is informs, like I said, every part of who you are. So it's not just your relationship with this other person. It's also your relationship with God. It's also your relationship with every single person you meet every day. Like it's all a part of that vocation. So by saying no to it, you're saying no to like your entire purpose. And you're turning yourself into like something that's very empty and shallow. So then to address the second part, I decided to get married to Andrew specifically at that time in my life. Um, Some of the reasons are good. Some of the reasons are probably not great. Um, I would be remiss to not acknowledge the fact that I was coming out of a, a lot of dark um, therapists love to say complex trauma. <laughs> there was a lot of baggage and I felt safe and okay and seen for once. And I clung to it. Um, and there was an option for me to be able to secure that for myself forever. Um, and so of course that was beyond tempting. To be able to say like, okay, like this person, this situation, this circumstance, I can have this for the rest of my life. Before that, I felt like I was grasping. But for me, marriage to Andrew, again, wasn't just about committing to him and this relationship that we had together, but also committing to this entire lifestyle worldview, et cetera. And that was something I was desperate to do in an official, unending infinite way. But of course, you know, there were other pieces. Um, My, one of the reasons why I, practically speaking, got married so young was because as Catholics, uh, we didn't live together before marriage. And um, we didn't, Andrew and I specifically as a couple did not have sex before marriage. Um, And that led to a lot of um, difficulties, especially because when I converted my family had a very negative reaction. Um, so I lost a lot of support that other people typically have in their, you know, early, you know, that time, like 18 to 22. Um, I didn't have that. And so I was working two jobs, 60 to 80 hours a week, trying to get savings and a credit score and all of that stuff and trying to do all of all alone. Um, doing all of that stuff by yourself, like trying to pay for an apartment without anybody with you, you know, like all that just like really difficult. And our relationship was getting pushed forward um, by my circumstances in a way that kind of made things move faster than they normally would. Because I had to rely on him and his family uh, more than I would have liked. So like everything I said about the vocation stuff, very pious and pretty and true, definitely true. But there were certainly some things that were more like secular, basic, and maybe arguably problematic like the, you know, financial dependence and, um, you know, all of those bits and pieces. Yeah. I want to cut in there for a second. Cause it's interesting that you sort of separate out the, the faith-based aspects, the, the personal spiritual development aspects, and then like the economic aspects. Cause that's a theme that we've discussed on this podcast before, where a lot less people are getting into relationships and, it seems that people who are dating are far more picky in particular about the sorts of people that they're dating. And I almost wonder if the end result is 
people are far less likely to date or go out on dates with individual people, but are far more likely when they do go on dates to eventually end up with them together. Um, because even if you're not a hundred percent with that person, there's still all the economic benefits that come with being with a person. And you've already filtered out in theory, most of the negative attributes that you, you know, want to avoid in a relationship. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, given how rent prices across the country are spiking, it's, it's kind of a win-win to be like, Hey, you want to move in together within a year of knowing someone or even less. Cause it's like, Oh, we're only paying rent for one apartment. We're only paying one electric bill, one water bill, one Wi-Fi bill. Um, and given that, you know, our generation is one of the poorest by far, uh, that, that, that's definitely an incentive. So, so it's fascinating that you have this kind of combination of, of spiritual and economic pushing you forward. Um, do, do you think things might've turned out differently if you'd had the support of your family and were able to, you know, I don't know, live with them, be supported by them? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, the way that the quote proposal happened <laughs> um, was Andrew walked up to me um, just willy nilly and was like, hey, I've been thinking, um, you know, he'd already discerned that he felt like he was called to marriage. So that was kind of decided, um, but just not necessarily to me. Right. So like that's one step and then an entirely different one. Um, and then he said, you know, I've been thinking, I really think that um, I feel like we are, you know, called to marry one another. What do you think about that? And I'm kind of like, okay, I'm like treading very carefully. Um, I've told him before and any, you know, most of my close friends know I don't like casual engagements. I didn't when I was an atheist. Um, I don't like people just assuming things <laughs> and um, being so casual with like commitment and endearment and attachment from someone. Like, no, you don't just get to like walk up to me and shrug and be like, hey, I think I want to be with you forever. How do you feel about that? Like, no, this is not, that's not what I want. Okay. Like I want you to like be grand and dramatic and vulnerable and all these things. Like this is not a casual conversation. So I'm trying to figure out how the heck to get out of it. Um, so I'm like, well, you know, I haven't really thought about it. <laughs> just not a nice thing to say to someone, but it's the best thing I could think of at the time. And he said, hmm. And he kind of looks off to the side. He's like, okay, do you think you could think about it? I was like, yeah, sure. Okay, whatever. And I just hope he doesn't bring it up again. Like, <laughs> that's my ultimate hope. And then the next day, he comes up to me. And we see each other because we were going to mass in the morning. And he's like, so have you thought about it anymore? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. He just won't let up. Like, bro, I'm not, this is not what we're doing. Like, I'm not some casual thing you're picking up in the supermarket. You're asking me if I'm willing to commit the rest of my life to you. And like, it needs to be a formal question. He hasn't even really asked, like, you know, would you be, it's not even that. It's not, will you marry me? It's like, how do you feel? Um, and like, also, yeah, that's like, <laughs> hey, do you want to commit to watching all of Game of Thrones together next weekend? Yeah, do you want to get into, you know, a, a whole, you want to watch all the Bond films, you know, check that off our list. How long and have you guys been dating at this point? Not long, Naomi. That's a good question. <laughs> um, we started dating in October of 2016 and end of October. And conversation happened at the very beginning of February of 2018. So like four months. Now we had known each other since the seventh grade, graduating class of 81. So pretty intimately, I've known this person as a person for a long time. Uh, we watched each other go through puberty and make terrible mistakes and be horrible people. 
Um, and I endeavored to kind of ruin his life a couple times throughout school. So like we, we know each other, um, but we had not been dating for that long. So I also think he's out of his mind. Um, reasonably, I feel like. <laughs> like this guy's like, whoa, I can't. Um, so he keeps pushing me. And finally, and th- th- we had this conversation a couple times where he tries to ask and I'm like, bro, we're not doing this. And then finally he gets a little frustrated, which takes my husband in particular a while. And he's like, okay, well, I feel like you're, you're blowing me off. And I was like, yeah, I'm blowing you off. (laughs) And he's like, well, how, why would you do that? You know, like, that's like cruel. Like, why would you do that? And I was like, okay, well, if you want to ask me a question, you need to ask me the question. And then he has the audacity to say, what question? And I'm like, okay, at this point, I'm ready to walk away. (laughs) This is oh, a red Lord. flag if I've ever seen one. Um, and I'm like, it's it pains me. It pains me to say it out loud because I'm also humiliated. Because also, what if I'm wrong? You know, like, what if that's not what's happening? But at this point, I'm like, this has to be what's going on here. Um, so I say, will you marry me would be the question you're looking for, Andrew. And he says, okay. Then he looks me in the eyes, again, audacity, and says, will you marry me? And I'm like, I'll think about it. <laughs> I walk away uh, <laughs> um and I'm like furious and I'm also like frankly at that point I believe in God and I'm a practicing Catholic and I'm also pissed off at God I'm like I had this good thing going I had this guy he's a nice guy he's not using my body he's not like you know trying to do x y and z he doesn't have all this like weird damaging tendencies toxic masculinity nonsense like I don't have to worry about any of that you gave me this incredible man and now he's an idiot like, I, like, what are you doing? You've ruined, like, this is supposed to be, I've kind of chalked this up to be like my happily ever after. And I'm ready to like write it out, right? And now it's all messy and gross. And I'm like, I don't like this. And now I have to actually think about this. Um, so I spent, we have this prayer and well, in, so I'm a Byzantine Catholic now, Roman Catholic before. It's not really that different. It's like two different languages kind of there's a lot of liturgical differences that nobody cares about so don't worry about it but in the roman catholic tradition this special kind of prayer called eucharistic adoration where you go into a room sit before the eucharist and pray um and so i did that for six hours and was just pissed the whole time pretty much um but then i had to have the humility to actually ask like is this what you think is a good idea right um and again I'm not necessarily like Andrew hasn't said like we're going to get married this year which is what ended up happening you know like that's not what he said he said do you think we should get married um and I'm like okay do you think we should get married I don't know so I just started praying on it and thinking about it and also reflecting on myself what do I want what do I need um how do I want my story to go um and it takes me a really long time to figure that out um but that's how that conversation started. <laughs> um, I did tell him when I when I finally came to him, I don't know, a couple of days later and was like, OK, um, yes, I'm pretty confident that like my next steps are to, you know, be with you and like live out our vocations together. I feel pretty confident about that. However, I do not appreciate how you went about this. It does not feel like you were honoring me as a person or, you know, treating me with the respect that I feel like I'm due. So you're going to need to like try a little bit harder. So I did indeed make him propose again. 
um, <laughs> which is like maybe one of the pettiest things I've ever done. But um, I wanted it and he knew that I wanted it and um, it was great. So it ended up working out fine, obviously. Um, but to be clear, um, again, for I don't know, you know, what everybody who's listening with their backgrounds are, but like no one involved in our family or friend groups thought, oh, this is a great idea. Um, everyone we knew from high school thought we were nuts. Actually, they all thought I was pregnant, really. Um, my parents thought we were crazy. <laughs> um, his parents uh, eh, thought we were crazy, but a little less so. Um, and everyone was gossiping and judging, everyone. And it's not a short and easy thing to explain any of it. And a lot of it is frankly faith-based, right? Like a lot of it is like, this is why we live our life the way we live it. This is why we believe life is worth living all of these pieces. And we're not all on the same page about that. What I had to come to terms with both with getting married young and having kids young decisions we made um, separately was, you know, I don't, one time I was in confession and I was talking to a priest, my priest, my confessor, um, who I love very much. And I'm like close to sobbing. This is fairly recently, about a year ago. And he looks at me and he says, Audrey, when are you going to realize that if you're disappointing your parents, it's likely you're doing the right thing? Um, and that's not just about my parents. It's also just about like people at large. Like we forget, I think, and I think this is true regardless of belief in God. Um, we don't live our lives for other people. Like social expectations are crushing, often outdated and poorly informed. Um, you know, we, so many of us, Catholic or non-Catholic, make decisions based out of what will earn us the approval of other people, what will make us look good, look bad. Um, and I lived a good deal of my life trying to be impressive. I, you know, I found what I was good at, leaned into it, and got trophies for it. And that praise became what I chased. But I had no internal motivation. So I felt like I was rotting from the inside out. And so these, these moments, you know, like I said, I had a lot of struggles with my family, um, really intense ones. You know, my, my parents, my sister, um, even extended family, some of my extended family refused to come to my wedding. Um, my parents initially refused to come to my wedding. They did eventually come. My dad did walk out at one point, um, angrily. Uh, you know, it was went messy and awful. And I worked at Starbucks and sometimes the meal that I got for free at Starbucks was the only thing I ate that day. Um, and I didn't have a car. I had my motorcycle that I drove everywhere living in Phoenix with 120 degrees, you know, like, it was difficult. It was really difficult. Um, and Catholic pre-canai getting ready for marriage is really involved. So we had to drive to meetings all over the diocese and pay for these classes that we couldn't afford and pay for, you know, wedding stuff. And I was like, oh my gosh, like my life is crumbling. Um, but it was also probably one of the happiest times of my life because I was living fully for myself. Everything, all of the hardship that I was going through, I was choosing. I wanted this. This is what I wanted for me. And no one was going to be able to take that away from me. And I was going to fight for it until I was bleeding. And I did. And I made sacrifices. But, and Andrew did too, not to exclude him from that, but that's his own, you know, his own thing. Um, 
And the same thing happened, you know, when I found out that I was pregnant with my daughter. Um, to be honest, when we got married, my husband has a urological condition. So we were told by a urologist when we were engaged that he was very likely infertile. Um, so going into marriage, I was a couple months before we got married, I was kind of left with the conclusion that I probably wouldn't have kids, you know, like biologically speaking. Um, and I didn't really know how to feel about that. Cause again, this was all kind of a whirlwind, but I was grieving it. Um, and something to note about Catholic sex that a lot of people probably know a little bit, but not completely is one of the requirements for sex within the Catholic prerogative to be um, like holy and good, right? Which is kind of the goal because sex is like an incredible, awesome, wonderful thing that, that we can all agree. Um, the Catholic church, Catholic social teaching kind of puts stipulations to protect that awesome, holy thing, right? They, they have d- ideas about what keeps it from becoming painful, harmful, whatever. So those two things, um, I mean, there's a few things, but obviously consent, very important. Um, first and foremost. So both people have to be active, willing, full participants. Um, Pleasure is actually a part of it. Most people don't like to talk about that, including Catholics. Honestly, I'm not going to give them all the credit for that. Uh, But pleasure is necessary. In fact, John Paul II in The Theology of the Body indicates that uh, men, he argues that it is possible. One could argue, I think is how he phrases it, um, that men have a moral obligation to bring their wives to orgasm if it doesn't occur naturally during penetration outside of the act of penetration. Which again, nobody wants to talk about because he wants to talk about female orgasm, honestly. Um, and then the last thing is um, like, quote, openness to life, which is like tricky. They're not really talking about abortion in that sense, but because of Catholics and the word life, that's where we jump to. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about is like the, not using birth control, right? But beyond that, it's more than that. It's you have to have a willingness and an acknowledgement that part of what you're doing is engaging in the act of creation and like this holy divine thing. So like you're doing something, you're doing a God thing. You're not just doing like a regular human thing. You're doing like a God thing. Um, and so you're accepting the full responsibility of that. Those tenants have to be there. So with that in mind, when Andrew and I get married, while we're under the, that we probably can't have kids, we have a moral obligation to accept, acknowledge, and eagerly, arguably eagerly attend the idea that we could have children come out of every time we have sex. A Catholic couple uh, who fully believes in Catholic social teaching on sex and marriage believes all those things. Um, So to say that like we had a baby by accident, if you're following Catholic social teaching on sex and marriage, it's only possible because every time you're saying, maybe even out loud, like yes to this. Like, yes, fiat, absolutely. This is what I want. Um, and then we had Azalee. Uh, that's my daughter. And um, I got pregnant on my honeymoon. He is not infertile. I've been pregnant five times. Uh, I've had a couple of miscarriages. Um, so he's very much not infertile. Like I said, we've been married for five years. So <laughs> um, it's, you know, that ended up not being true. But like all of those pieces kind of inform that that ultimate question of like, why did we do what we do? And because all of that is true, right? Like I gave you a lot of little pieces of like Catholic theology in there. It needs to be clear that like, I'm not a theocrat. So 
I don't prescribe my choices on others. Like I would not truly say to Joel, like, you know what, you would have been happier if you just married somebody at 19. Like, I don't think that that's true. Um, And I don't think that my choices are the right choices for everyone else. And we have a responsibility as human beings to, like I said earlier, live intentionally and make choices fully utilizing not only, you know, what feels good to us, quote unquote, but also like using our moral faculties, whatever they may be, which are often, obviously, not Catholic, right? But the only thing that we can be asked is to behave morally as best we understand. Like, that's it. So honestly, if someone is not Catholic, like my best friend, Tina, um, she's not Catholic. She does lots of things that Catholics don't do. Um, But she continues to act out of her understanding of what is right and what is wrong. How could I ask her to do something that she thinks is wrong? That doesn't make any sense. Um, And to make choices based on this ideology that she doesn't understand, doesn't agree with. Like one thing that's huge and completely run over by Catholics in power, priests, bishops, loud Catholic people, and secular folk who have been harmed by those priests and bishops is like Catholicism, the fundamental basis of our relationship to God, all of that is consent. Like our yes in our actions, every action is crucial. It's the foundation of everything. So if you as an individual are not consenting to what is being asked of you, you there's an action that perhaps hypothetically God would like for you to take, whatever, it's the moral, it's whatever. If you say no, your no matters. And your no is the bottom line. Um, And that's important. That's the reason why God doesn't force people to love him. Because it makes me sick to think about. (laughs) Um, There are some sectors of Christianity that uh, endorse that idea or think it would be better if God did. Uh, But free will is essential. Um, And so making informed decisions, saying your yeses when they're yeses and saying your noes when they're noes is like the foundation of everything that matters. So hopefully that caveat is is hurt because I feel like when people hear like, oh, this person's doing this this fringe religious thing, it sounds like automatically like, oh, they and they're advocating for it for everyone else. And I'm not so self-obsessed that I would say something like that. Um, so hopefully that is clear. So um I would like to wrap up this first episode with you and move into more talks about like your daily life, like being a parent. I think that's amazing. You have a child in the way. I didn't know you were so far along. I'm going to be honest. Getting an episode, you were like, I'm 30 weeks long. I was like, oh my God. But yeah, I would love to like talk about like being a parent and like talk more about like the friendships that you have and like where they are in like their relationships. Cause obviously like, I don't think many of your friends, I know like Joel's friends, like not a lot of them are married. So, um, and you're obviously younger than him, but like you guys kind of went, we're in the same circle. So maybe like talk about, um, where your friends either together that you guys have now, obviously you're not going to name call them be like first name, last name middle legal name. Nami's doing a lot of rambling. And I think what she's really trying to say is she needs a bathroom break. And, and Nami, you can just state that. 
Okay. Um, I hope everyone has a good week. Audrey, I'll be back. I need to pee. Uh, well, wait, wait, wait. Before we end this part one, Audrey, yeah. are there any specific organizations or groups you'd like to plug? Any important causes you think our viewers can put some attention on? Okay, I would like to point out that I was not previously informed this would be a question. So You've I am listened like, to our episodes. You I know, know this is I know, but I really honestly, um, hmm. I would say when I don't have any particular organizations, I am a big fan of focusing on um, local engagement more than national or international engagement. I think it's overlooked. There's a lot of small community organizations, you know, wherever you are that are doing incredible work Mm -hmm. within your community, especially local organizing. I live in Lawrence, Kansas, which is this like random town. That's incredible. Um, And we have a lot of local organizing. Our local elections are very vibrant, engaged. Um, So I would look small wherever you are and not only financially support those organizations, but also like see how you can invest other parts of yourself and be a steward right, of your community. Right. Um, not that, you know, financial, I, I, mean, I don't have, I got married at 19. I got two kids. I have another kid on the way. It's we're financially a mess. <laughs> so like, I don't have a lot of financial resources to throw around, but I do, I do do that for sure. But also I find that like, it's also fulfilling to really like use your body and, and what, everything else that you have to offer um, and figure out what those things are, what your strengths are, and then give them to those, those smaller organizations where you're going to make a, a larger footprint. That's what I would say. Good answer for on the fly. <laughs> we'll cut out the long, um, you know, just get to the meat. Uh, Audrey, thank you so much for uh, sitting down with us today. We'll be back next week with uh, additional conversations about parenting and other aspects of your life. Uh, Naomi, anything else? I really need to pee. Okay. Run to the restroom (laughs) now. Bye, y'all. Thanks for the use of our theme music, which is the song Drop by Ketza. You can find more of their music online at ketza.uk. You can also find Date These Guys online on Twitter and Instagram at Date These Guys, or visit our website at datetheseguys.org. If you have questions you'd like us to discuss in the podcast or marriage proposals for either of us, shoot us an email at datetheseguys at gmail.com.